coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast. I'm Tyler, and with me today on this week three mailbag edition of the podcast is my coach, Charlie. And Charlie, I got to ask you, because this is a tough experience for me, but like me, this was your first game not in Sanford Stadium on a home game weekend in, what, over a decade? It's been at least a decade, right, for you? Long time. It's been a long time. Was it as tough for you as it was for me? Did it just feel weird, like something wasn't right? No, not really. I feel like this year is just like living in the twilight zone. So you just kind of embrace the weird this year? It's just strange. And I have, and like, it's weird. I can, in almost every other walk of my life, yes, I've just kind of accepted it. I'm going with the flow. It is what it is. You just got to roll with it, right? And I feel like I've done a pretty good job of that. I mean, as well as can be expected. But football is just different for me because this is a massive part of my life and it's just I get it's it's part of my identity it's culture it's all those things and not being there having like and I don't like to call it a street because I don't count it like that I just I just want to be there it's just part of what I do and to not be able to be there was really really weird I'm not gonna lie I was looking for tickets in case you guys are wondering I did opt out I have season tickets but I don't have enough points for the three times points total to really matter this year so, you know, I didn't want to pay basically full freight for one home game. That's probably all I would have gotten. It probably would have ended up being Vanderbilt for my level, probably 600 level in Vanderbilt. So I opted out, and I saw, but I was looking all the way up until like an hour before the game because I, I can walk to the stadium from my house and be there in 20, 30 minutes. And I was looking all the way up to like an hour before the game for tickets online, trying to find some that, that worked for me, but just couldn't quite pull the trigger. But it was weird. It was weird. It was weird. But did you go out downtown on Friday night? for a drink and dinner on Friday it wasn't it was strange because everyone was out so early because last call is at 1130 yeah if you guys don't those of you who don't live in Athens so the city council here they they basically wanted bars to have to do last call at like nine o'clock shut down at nine o'clock the bars they filed a lawsuit they fought back as they should have and so the compromise was they've got to be closed by new or midnight right Yes. And so last call is 11.30. So what this means is us older Athenians, people who actually live here permanently, typically when we're coming home from a night out downtown on a Friday night before a game, that's kind of when the college kids are coming out because they're coming out around 11, 12 o'clock at night. But now that's not the case. So it's this weird, just strange environment where you have the townies, the people who live here, and the college kids all at the same time. And it's, it's weird. So that kind of, I guess that mitigated the the situation but like did it really feel like a true game weekend a home game weekend no like not even close it was just college students coming at me from every direction and i wanted to do any everything to like get every away. direction in whatever direction you turn to get away there's more coming down the street it's like oh they're coming this way they're coming that way it's like oh my god we oh just, my god we just opted to walk in the street and try not to get run over yeah well it was interesting it has been interesting here but it's still nice to be able to go down so I, I will say like we, I've been going out about every Friday, Saturday night, just to you know go have some food, get a drink, something like that. But I do think, even though it wasn't like a true home game weekend, like a Georgia Athens home weekend, it was still better, and there was more energy around town than there had been, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. There's there's more people out. There was more energy. 
I even saw a few Auburn people, which, you know, on a typical weekend, you see people from out of town all the time, but only saw a couple, but it, it was, it's, I don't know, it's just different. It's weird, but hey, we've got football. I'll take, I'll take what I can get right now, so it's just great to have it back. But all right, we've got a ton of questions to get to. Seriously, a ton of questions to get to today. You guys loaded us up again with a great group of questions to discuss, and as always, we did have a few questions that kind of overlap each other, so if you hear a question that was similar to yours, but we didn't maybe use your name, we're definitely sorry about that. We try to just spread the love out as, as much as we possibly can, and I'm sure we're going to miss something and mess up somewhere, but I promise we are not deliberately ignoring anyone, so please don't feel that way. But Charlie, we've got a ton to get to today. I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to you. What you got? All right, we're going to start with the topic that our listeners can't seem to get enough of, and of course, that's the quarterback position. We all know Stetson Bennett, the mailman, got his first career start against Auburn last weekend, but there are still questions about how far this team can go with him leading the offense. So let's kick things off with our first set of questions from Lynn and Alexander, who both have very similar questions. Lynn asks, what do you think our ceiling is with the mailman? Uh, Lynn loves what he has done, but can we win 10 SEC games with him at the helm? And then also Alexander says, they, you guys touched on this um, in the recap pod, uh, that Stetson Bennett starting lowers our ceiling. Alexander agrees that Bennett and Fromm are similar talent-wise, and Bennett is good enough to beat most teams on our schedule, but against the elite teams that can either put up points against any defense or make our offense one-dimensional. Do you think Stetson can win us games? We saw last year that Jake Fromm and his formula had limitations, and Alexander was looking forward to a more dynamic offense in 2020, but I don't know that we've seen that yet. No, we haven't. It hasn't been dynamic. It was obviously much better on Saturday against Auburn than what we saw in week one. Again, I'll go back to what I said on the recap show. I feel like what we saw against Auburn on Saturday was just kind of an extension of what we saw the second half against that against, in Arkansas against the Hogs. But I, I do think this is the question of the season right now. And you're right, Charlie. There's a lot of interest around the quarterback situation. Like Our, our listeners can't seem to get enough of it, which is totally cool. We're, we're happy to talk about whatever you guys want us to talk about. And this seems to be where a lot of the interest still lies right now. And I get it because there's, there's a lot of intrigue around it. But this is the question of the season. And I, and I have to be upfront with you guys. I still do have some concerns about this. I, I, I know some of you want me to reassure you. I think I, I, well, At least I feel like you want me to reassure you that we can still accomplish all of our goals with Stetson Bennett. And I think that it's certainly potentially possible. Like It's not like just completely something I'm going to dismiss, but I also can't sit here and say, oh yeah, guys, everything we wanted to accomplish, it's all still out there in front of us with Stetson Bennett at quarterback. I can't guarantee that. I, I, I don't know that I feel better with Stetson Bennett at quarterback than if Jamie Newton was our quarterback right now. I have to be honest there. But as I've said for the past week and a half or so, I believe Stetson is everything Jake Fromm was, minus the experience, but added a little bit more athleticism. But the question is, can we beat elite teams with Stetson Bennett quarterback? And, and as I've said, we won a lot of games with Jake Fromm as our quarterback, but even though we got close with Fromm, we never quite got over that last hurdle with Jake. We got as close as you could possibly get over time the national championship game. But we still didn't quite get it done. Now, I don't know if that was necessarily on Jake, but regardless, we did not get that done. And Jake played really well in some of those big games. Like, And when he didn't play lights out, we just didn't have a chance to win. But he played really well in the 2018 SEC Championship game. He played really well in that game. He played well enough for us to win that game. The defense on the, in that game did not hold up their end of the bargain. I thought in the Rose Bowl, he wasn't, he wasn't the star of the Rose Bowl, but I thought for a true freshman in a game like that, I thought he played really well. Going down there in the two-minute drill, getting a big score, that was huge. Uh, 
basically every time he played the Florida Gators, Jake Fromm just balled out. He was a rock star. So he played really well in a lot of big games. And he's beaten elite teams. So if what I've said about Jake and Stetson holds true, and I'm not saying I'm right, it's just kind of my observation right now through a game and a half of seeing Stetson Bennett play and three years of watching Jake Fromm play, I think their strengths are extraordinarily similar. So again, if Jake was able to win a lot of games and beat some elite teams with his skill set, I think you can say the same about this team with Stetson Bennett quarterback. But I will say this, and this is kind of where my mind is, and this is why I have some doubts, because I still go back to the fact that there is a reason that we changed the offense in this offseason. There's a reason we went out and recruited Jamie Newman. Kirby finally admitted, he finally acknowledged that we had to go out and open up this offense and try to make it more dynamic. And I think that's the reason we opened the season with Dwan Mathis at quarterback, even though there were probably some thoughts in the back of our coaches' minds, like, is, is he ready yet? I mean, he's a young guy. Is he, is he fully there yet to be able to do all the things we need quarterbacks to do in this offense? But the fact that he was more dynamic of an athlete and that potential and that ceiling was there, I think that was intriguing to them. I think that's ultimately why they went with him because they realized we need to be more dynamic on offense. They've seen what Alabama was doing with Tua. They saw what LSU did last year. Our coaches are not idiots. They understand that we need to evolve a little bit. And I think that was the plan. But we had to adjust on the fly. That plan had to change when Jamie Newman first opts out. Then JT Daniels, the guy you bring in, bring in as kind of your backup option, doesn't really get medically cleared in time to get ready for the season. And even though he's cleared now, like, is he 100% healthy? How confident is he in that knee? How confident are we in the knee? How mobile is he? Like, is he 100%? How close to 100% is he? We don't know those things. Doesn't seem to be like he's super close right now. And then we try out Dwan Mathis to see if we can kind of strike lightning in a bottle there. But that didn't work out early in the season in game one. And I'm, not, and I'm certainly not closing the door on Dwan Mathis, but... I think when all those things kind of just conspired to hit like that, I think that's when we had to kind of revert back to Stetson Bennett, revert back to the old formula. And I will say this about Stetson. I don't think there's anything that Stetson Bennett is doing at quarterback that is surprising to Kirby. Kirby has basically made that clear, and I believe him. I think that Kirby in that first half against Arkansas just realized that we wanted to try Mathis to see if he can kind of be that dynamic option at quarterback to kind of kickstart this offense and start that evolution. But I think he realized pretty quickly that Mathis just isn't ready yet in a, in a game setting. And we know Daniels isn't ready from a medical standpoint. And then so he had to revert back to that old formula with a smart, steady quarterback that hopefully won't kill you. And I think he knew that's what Stetson was. But again, he didn't start Stetson to open the season because we wanted to be more dynamic at that position. And the fact is, Stetson just isn't all that much more dynamic than Jake Fromm. Yes, he's more athletic and he can, he can do some things with his legs that Jake could never dream of doing. But it's not like Stetson Bennett's going out there running a 4-4-40 and doing things like Justin Fields, Juwan Mathis can do with his legs. He's not doing that. More, maybe more dynamic than Fromm, but I mean, how much is that saying from, from an athletic standpoint? But I, I do think that our staff has realized that for so long, we were limiting ourselves offensively and just reducing our margin for error voluntarily. I, we could, we could, and I still think we can be anyone if everything is working according to the plan offensively. But if defense is adjusted, we couldn't really do anything. If things broke down, we'd have a quarterback that could, that could really make things happen. We just weren't stressing defenses as much as we possibly could. We weren't maximizing that stress on defenses. So to go back to the original question, try to answer that, yes. I do think Stetson can win games against top opponents because we've done it in the past with this exact same formula that we seem to have reverted back to with a strong defense, controlling the game on the ground, hitting just enough plays in the past game to keep defenses honest. And yes, Stetson adds a little bit of a different element with his athleticism, 
but it's just a razor thin margin for error on offense with Stetson at quarterback, as it was for a couple of years with Jake Fromm at quarterback. Things had to go right with Jake. Things have to go right with Stetson right now around him. We can't get down a couple scores. I don't think our offense is there to be able to mount that massive comeback yet, absent some serious turnovers from the opponent. But yeah, I think we can. I think we can win everything everything that's in front of us the rest of the way on, this, on our schedule. I just, I don't think I'm as confident. No, I, I'm not as confident as I was you know, let's go back a month and a half ago when it looked like Jamie Newman was probably going to be the starting quarterback, and we thought that JT Daniels was was going to be healthy. So if something happens to the Newman, then you got Daniels right there. But neither of those guys, obviously Newman's not on the team, and Daniels just doesn't appear to be ready right now. So we're rolling with Stetson, and it's just the same formula that it has been for well, the past three years, going back to 2017. All right. Well, we aren't done talking about the quarterback position yet. What? More because quarterback John, questions? I know. There's a lot. Jonathan said last year we saw the offense performing pretty well until maybe the South Carolina game. Then defenses started loading the box, and then our offense effectively collapsed. Do you think a similar collapse could happen this year with Stetson Bennett at quarterback? Yeah, I think this is a fair question. And I addressed this a little bit on on social media with Jonathan. I do think it's a fair question. But I think last year, I'm not saying that Jake Fromm was not an issue for us. There there were some things that – that he got exposed with, that his deficiencies were just clearly exposed last year when things, like, like I said in the last question, things around him broke down. Things were not working. They were not functioning like they needed to, like they had been in years past, and therefore Jake Fromm's numbers dropped dramatically. And I and I, I said last year, and I'll go back to it, I don't think Jake Fromm was any different than what he was in 2017 or 2018. He was still the same guy. He was still doing the same things. Problem was we changed offense coordinators. The offense changed a little bit, and it didn't really maximize what he did well. And then you have all the receivers go down around you, and then it's a major problem. Things weren't going well offensively. We had some issues, and when we had issues, Jake wasn't good enough. He had too many deficiencies to be able to pull us out of that on his own. So I, I, I'll i say, yeah, I've I compared Stetson Bennett to Jake Fromm, and I think there's a lot of similarities there. But I do think last year was more about the offensive coordinator being a step down, and then just the wide receiver situation. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me right here, but I laid them out for you guys last year during the season. The splits last year for Jay Fromm with Lawrence Cager versus without Lawrence Cager, it was night and day. His numbers were so dramatically different. So I think when Cager goes down, Pickens wasn't quite ready to be the guy early on. He had those flashes, but he wasn't ready to be consistently the guy early on. He was later season, but that wasn't until much later. And we just didn't have the options at receiver. And then that South Carolina game, you're exactly right. What they did is they just manned up on us on the outside. They went single high coverage there. They basically playing man man free with one single high safety, press man across the board, and our receiver simply could not do anything in that game to get open after Cager goes down. And they were able to load the box, and we couldn't run the football. We just simply could not do anything. And I think that was the formula that the rest of the SEC that we had to play the rest of the way followed the remainder of that season, and it just made it so difficult for our offense to do anything. We kind of had that small little resurgence against Florida, and then we went kind of back in the tank after that because the the tape was out. People knew how to defend us at that point. But I, So I think that we're in a different place this year in both areas. I think we have a massive upgrade at the offensive coordinator position with Todd Munkin, and our receivers, I think we are significantly better at that position with guys like Kyrus Jackson ready to take that next step. George is already where George needs to be right now. We've got some young guys that are going to continue to grow, but I think they will get there. The thing is, like if Jermaine Burton and Rosemary were on the team last year, they were kind of like pickings. Like they weren't, they wouldn't have been ready early to really be those guys. But the thing is, we have some breathing. We have Kyrus Jackson. We have George Pickens. We have 
Demetrius Robertson, some guys to lean on to allow those guys to have a chance to grow and get ready later in the season. We didn't really have that luxury last year with Pickens when we had a guy like Lawrence Cager go down. So I, I, I see where you're coming from here, Jonathan. I just think we're in a different situation with our offensive coordinator and our wide receiver situation. Okay, and one final question about the quarterback before we move on to discuss other areas of the team. Justin has a hypothetical. He asks, if Stetson starts every game for the rest of the season, how good of a season would he have to have to be drafted? Or are his physical attributes just too much of a deterrent? If you're an NFL GM, are you spending a draft pick on Stetson Bennett? I mean, we'll see how he does. you got to have good players around you. 5'11", 190 pounds, you're going with that? I mean, you're going to put your job on the line. Yes, he's draft. awfully. Yes, he's small. It doesn't. And I know the NFL isn't your thing. You don't really yeah. pay attention to the NFL. But no, I mean he's short. He's you know he doesn't have a super arm. I mean, it, let's imagine Stetson Bennett going to the NFL Combine. Can you imagine Stetson Bennett going up there with all the other quarterbacks? I mean, I mean, when he's next to Darnell Washington or even near him on the field, it's just like giant. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's it's insane. Yeah, but imagine Stetson Bennett standing at the NFL Combine, standing next to guys like Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. Like, I mean, just the optics of that to me, like, oh yeah, I'm not sure we can draft this guy. Now, I think like Fromm, if you give him in a room with, with coaches, then he he can really draw some plays on the board and really impress them. But how did that work for Jake? I mean, fifth round, okay. I mean, I don't know. So, look, we've seen smaller guys get drafted over the past several years. You know, you got Kyler Murray, you've got. Russell Wilson going back many years now. But you the thing is, if you're that small, you've just got to be dynamic and have a unique skill set for NFL teams to be willing to forego. Because they like they have this kind of conditioned response to undersized quarterbacks. They see one, they're just like, nope, nope, they immediately dismiss you. So you gotta be you gotta be dynamic, you gotta have this unique skill set for them to kind of forego that condition response to the undersized quarterbacks. And I just don't think that Stetson has that unique skill set. I love Stetson. I'm excited about what he's doing for us right now. But NFL, I just, I don't know, man. I just, I don't see that. I don't see where the unique skill set will come into play that would that would compensate for just the lack of size. And, and I'm not saying that, that Stetson can't go in there and, and maybe help a team on the scout team or something like that on the practice squad. But what does Stetson have that makes him stand out and that will compensate for that lack of size. I just don't think that he has it, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong here, but I just, I, I can't lie and say that I see that. Okay. Well, it wouldn't be a Glory UGA mailbag episode without some great questions from our friend Cliff. And oh, he has, Cliff's up. Let's he has go. a couple today, so I'm going to go ahead and read both. If you had to pick three areas for the defense to work on, what would they be? And with LeCount having missed a significant amount of playing time, did you gain more confidence in terms of the depth at safety? Was this a blessing in disguise as far as getting more reps? You think others? I can remember all that at one time? Yeah. Give, give me, I, okay, what was the first question? Just give me one at a time. Oh, I'm lost here. I'm lost. I've lost you, focus. If you had to pick three areas for the defense to work on, what would they be? Okay, yeah, this is a great question, Cliff. I love this. All right, three areas for the defense to work on. Uh, yeah, so the defense, they're like the sacred ones who can't be criticized, right? And they're, they're awesome. They are so awesome. But they are not above reproach. We've got to be honest here. And there are some things that I see that we've got to continue to work on. Yes, I know the results have been fantastic so far. Teams are averaging less than 250 yards against us offensively through the first two games. Now, I don't think we've faced a dynamic offense, but that's coming, guys. We're going to face much better offenses in the coming weeks. And we have got to shore up some of the things that I have seen. That have got, I don't want to say they're, they're concerning me, but I've certainly observed them. I've noticed them. And, I, and there are plays that I've seen like, wow. Okay, if that's Alabama, that's probably six. They're going to make us pay for that. If that's Florida, they're probably going to make us pay for that. We've got to continue to get better. So there's a couple things here. So if you want three, Cliff, all right, let's go with three. 
All right, so this is something that's just fresh in my mind from what we saw against Auburn. And you have to give Bo Nix credit. The guy is athletic. He's not a great passer. He's not a great quarterback, but he's an athletic dude that can make people miss. But we've got to do a better job of being more controlled when we have shots at the quarterback. I talked about in the recap show how it's it's great to be able to just pressure and affect the quarterback, which we did a great job of. We definitely affected Nix. We got him off his spot, forced him out of the pocket, and affected his play. There's no doubt about that. But it's also great to be able to get those guys on the ground. Sacks are huge, guys. Tackle for losses. The, the percentage of punts goes up dramatically when you get a tackle for loss, which a sack is. So I want us to do a better job of just coming in a little bit more under control. It, it, it's a fine line because you want to come in fast and aggressive enough to actually be able to make the play and, and to get there, but you don't want to be over aggressive and overrun the play. Allow the quarterback to make a, make a quick little move, escape the pocket, and then maybe make a play by keeping his eyes down the field which Nick's actually made a play or two with his eyes on the field. Not a ton of them, but he made a couple. And against better teams, that could potentially come back to hurt us. So that's one thing I really want us to do a better job of is coming in there with controlled aggression. That's the phrase, controlled aggression. The second thing I'm really, I don't want to say, again, not saying I'm concerned about it, but it's something that we need to be careful about and we need to improve on. This is what got us burned for that touchdown against Arkansas in week one. We've got to have better eye discipline in the secondary. Richard LeCount got his eyes in the backfield in week one against Arkansas in that first half touchdown, and, and the receiver runs right by him. Before he knows, before he recognizes it, it's too late. He's got to play catch up. He tries to make the tackle, but it's just too late, and it's six for the other guys. And Lewis Seen's a guy that I really like at safety along with LeCount. I think he's going to be a star for us. But as good as he is, he's still inexperienced, and he is very aggressive. Watch this guy play. He's very, very aggressive in run support. I haven't seen a ton from him in terms of getting his eyes caught in the backfield and, and being exploited for that, but I could see teams tr- watching the tape and trying to exploit that in the future because he does come up flying with almost reckless abandon against the run, which you love. You want to see him come up there and run support and make plays, and he's done a great job with that, but he's also got to continue to be careful. Don't get your eyes caught in the backfield. Have eye discipline. Watch your keys. Play your assignments and just don't get over aggressive. So sometimes I think that's where our defense can get into trouble. It's just being over aggressive in the secondary, especially when you got a young guy like Lewisine who hasn't played a ton. Really talented guy. He's going to be great for us, but just hasn't played a ton. You need that experience. And this is something I've talked about. The third thing that I've talked about a bunch of different times on this show. And we've had a lot of questions in the past. Like, why don't we do a better job rushing the passer? Why don't we? Why don't we have higher sack numbers? All those things. And we tried our best to explain that to you guys from a schematic standpoint. But just another thing, just from a technical standpoint, we still have to do a better job. I think we're getting better at this, but we need to continue to improve on converting our rush defense to a pass rush on the defensive line. We want to stop the run first and foremost up front defensively. That is what they're there to do, and that's what our coaches prioritize. But when they read that it is a pass, we've got to do a better job of converting from rush defense to a pass rush so that we can actually pressure the quarterback from the interior, get a little pressure inside the pocket, and make the quarterback uncomfortable. If you want to improve sack numbers, if you want to improve your numbers against top-level quarterbacks, that's what you got to do. You got to get that that push from the interior is deadly for a lot of quarterbacks, guys, especially guys that aren't super mobile. And, And we have a couple guys. I mean, Mac Jones is playing really well right now, but he's not an especially mobile guy. That kind of thing could really affect him. So we've got to do a better job of just converting that to pass rush along the defensive line. And because you can't remember anything, Cliff's second question I can was, remember things. It's just a lot to, to no, digest at one you time. You have a horrible memory. Okay, whatever you say. All right. So Cliff's second question was, with LeCount having missed a significant amount of playing time, did you gain more confidence in terms of the depth at safety? Was this a blessing in disguise as far as getting more reps for other players? 
I will say I've got to give some serious props to Chris Smith coming in in relief of Richard LeCount. This guy, and I told you guys before the season, one area of the defense that I was really concerned about was depth in the secondary, particularly at safety. I just didn't know what we had there in terms of quality depth. Chris Smith was a guy that I thought would be in the mix there. And he's a guy that was pretty small when he signed here, when he first came to Athens. But he has put on some good weight. I thought he moved well. I thought I thought he was prepared for the moment. I thought he had done a good job during the week, even though he's not going to start, which is tough, guys. When you know that you're not the starter, it's tough. It takes some maturity to go in there and prepare like a starter just in case something like this happens. And apparently Kirby said in Monday's press conference that Richard was actually dinged up a little bit last week at practice. So Chris actually got a lot of reps with the first team at practice. And it's just kind of one of those strange coincidences where it actually happens to be the week that he gets in there and Richard goes down or goes out, I should say, with what I think was a pretty bogus targeting call. But he goes out and we had to have somebody step in there and, and be the next man up. And it was Chris Smith. I thought he played really well. And that does help us. You're right, Cliff, from a depth standpoint for those guys to just have some some real serious game experience in, in meaningful downs. Like that, that's huge for the depth of that position and the growth of those guys behind our starters. So I think we're really good, but you just never know what's going to happen. It's a violent game. You have targeting calls. Safety is a position that's really kind of vulnerable to those targeting calls when you fly up there like Richard did to make that play. So it's really good to see a guy like Chris Smith get in there, perform really well, and just get that experience. All right. Our next question is related to that last question about LeCount getting ejected from last week's game due to what I think was a very questionable targeting call. Wasn't it? It was ridiculous. Yes. I, yeah, I agree. So Jamie asked, do you think there needs to be a rule change to the targeting penalty? Richie executed the tackle perfectly, but because the receiver was falling down, he hit him in the head or neck area. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this question. I was hoping somebody would ask about it because we didn't really get a chance to touch on it in the recap show. We just kind of ran out of time. So I was hoping we'd get a question about this in the mailbag because I did want to address this. I have a serious issue with that call. And maybe, maybe by the letter of the law, it's the right call. And if that's the case, then we just need to change the letter of the law because that's ridiculous. That's no, there's no way that should have been a penalty. There's no way that Richard LeCount should have been ejected from that game for that play. He absolutely led with his shoulder. Go back and watch the play, guys. I'm sure you saw it in real time. You know what I'm talking about. You're probably as angry about it as I am. He absolutely led with his shoulder. There was zero helmet-to-helmet contact. I know that's not the only indicator, but there was no upward thrusting, which is another indicator. There was no launching, which is another indicator. Maybe, I think the only potential argument you can make about that call is that you can potentially call it forcible contact to the head or neck area. It was certainly not contact to the head area, maybe the neck. I think it was more shoulder, neck, but not the head. But my question, I'm with you, Jamie. What in the world is Richard LeCount supposed to do in that situation? When he left his feet to lean with his shoulder to make the play, the receiver is essentially standing up. And as he is in the air, as LeCount's in the air, the wide receiver begins to fall down, it changes the contact point. And so instead of hitting the receiver in the back with his shoulder, like he clearly originally intended to, he ends up hitting him in the shoulder, neck area through no fault of his own. There's nothing Richard LeCount could have done there. So to eject him for that, like what are we doing to guys? At some point, they need to change this rule to start legislating for intent. Again, maybe by the letter of the law, he should have been ejected. I don't know. I have a major issue with the, with the rule if that's the case. I think you have to start legislating for intent when you're talking about throwing guys out. When the penalty is that steep, you're ejecting a guy from an entire game. And potentially, if it's if, if that, think about that, it happened on the first play or the first drive of the third quarter. 
That means LeCount misses the entire second half of that game and he misses the first half of Auburn. We were lucky it happened late in the second quarter. Honestly, we, we got a break there. But, I mean, to me, I just I, if the penalty is that steep, then you can't just be ejecting guys when it's clear that their intent was to not hurt somebody. There was no intent to hurt anyone whatsoever. I think you have to start legislating for intent. And I hear people say, oh, well, but how can you expect officials to do that? How can, how can they judge intent? Don't give me that BS about it being too subjective. Targeting is already a subjective call and open to interpretation. Not all officials are going to agree. And oh, by the way, guys, they already judge for intent with intentional grounding. The penalty is literally called intentional grounding. They're trying to determine, did the quarterback intentionally throw the ball on the ground to escape pressure? They already do that. There's a penalty on the books. Why can't they not do it with targeting? It makes no sense to me whatsoever. To me, like, why is that? Like, what, what Richard, Richard Account did, why is that an automatic ejection? But I, I'm sure you guys probably did not watch this game because it probably wasn't high on your list, but I just like to watch a bunch of football games as much as I can. So last night, I was actually going back and watching some of the games that I missed. I was watching the Texas Tech-Kansas State game. Alan Bowman, it's a pretty good quarterback for Texas Tech, he got knocked out of that game in the first quarter because of a very low and late hit from the defensive end. And it messes me up. And this is a poor Alan Bowman. This is a guy that's come back from two collapsed lungs in back-to-back years. And that hit on Bowman being late and low like that on a quarterback, on a defenseless quarterback, to me, that is far, far more malicious than what Richard LeCount did. But the defensive end on Kansas State's team, he stays in the game like nothing happened. Oh, yeah, 15-yard penalty, but he's still in the game. He still gets to play. He doesn't miss any time. Nothing happened, right? No big deal. It's just so absurdly punitive. And we're smarter than this. Like, as a college football community, the people who make these rules, they're so much smarter than this. We can do so much better. It's got to change. I, I like the fact now that they don't do the perp walk. Like when you were throwing out of the game, they used to like walk you out of off the sideline into the locker room. Like you just committed a crime. It's true. It's like a perp walk. I'm glad they don't do that anymore, but we just need to really completely rethink this targeting penalty. All right. Calm down now. But I mean, it's crazy. That's ridiculous. Like, imagine if that happened against Alabama. That could cost us the game. Against Florida, that could cost us the game. And, it's, and Richard LeCount did nothing wrong. He did exactly what he was coached to do. I agree. All right, moving on. We actually had a couple of people ask different versions of this next question. Nathan had a very similar question. But Christopher asked, um, starting with that he's glad we were dominant, but why are we taking our foot off the gas in the second half? We have a new offensive coordinator, and he still believes that every snap is valuable when working with a new offensive scheme. Yeah, so first off, this is one of those questions we had a lot of people ask a very similar question. So, We've used Christopher's question. If we didn't use your question, didn't call you out by name, we apologize for that. But we, we just had, had to go with one guy here. So Christopher got the call here. So this is a good question, Christopher. This has been a frustration for me with Kirby since almost day one. And I, I'm a big Kirby smart guy. I think that's pretty clear if you listen to this show. The speed with which he has brought our program into the elite ranks has been nothing short of incredible. So I, I love Kirby Smart. I have a lot of faith in this guy. I think he's an outstanding head coach. I think he's the right guy for the job and I hope he stays here for 20 more years. But that doesn't mean I don't get frustrated with some of the things that he does. And this is one of those things that does frustrate me. The, the pulling your foot off the gas pedal. I mean, it's, it's a hard slamming of the brake in the second half when we get these leads. And I can't, look, I don't know Kirby Smart. I can't really get inside his head. But just based off listening to every single interview this man does, there's some things that I kind of picked up on. And it's pretty clear to me. I feel like he kind of subscribes to this code of honor among coaches. 
It's kind of just this honor thing. And I respect it. Like, you don't want to run the score up. You don't want to embarrass other SEC coaches. You respect these guys. You don't want to run up on them. You don't want them to do the same thing to you. You don't want these guys to get fired. I get that. I respect it. I understand that. But we're also trying to win titles. And when your job is to win a national title and to get us where we need to go, cosmetic points do matter. I hate that they do. And maybe they don't matter as much as they once in the BCS era. But you can't tell me that those members of the college football playoff committee don't look at those things. You're not going to tell me they're not influenced to some degree by these really backward scores that teams like Ohio State and Oklahoma put up on teams because they're keeping their stars in for longer. And they're even if they don't keep their stars in, they're still running their actual offense. Like If you want to take our stars out, that's fine. Whatever. I don't want anybody to get hurt. But allow our backups to actually run the offense. Don't bring Dewan Matheson, a guy who needs reps, who needs experience if he's ever going to get to the point where he can actually contribute for us. Don't have him come in there and just hand the ball off left and right 10, 15 times. Like, what is that doing for Dewan Mathis? Yeah, he's out there on the field, but he's not reading defenses. He's not trying to improve on things that he didn't do as well in week one against Arkansas. So, I mean, we need, like, guys, with this COVID era, we need our twos and threes to get some real work. We absolutely do. And and also, like, those guys that work their tail off in the scout team week in and week out, when they get in the game, those guys deserve to not only actually get out there on the field, but they deserve to actually go out there and try to score, to run our offense. And I think there's a big difference between running trick plays when you're up by four scores and then just going out there and running your normal offense. And if you happen to score, you happen to score. I think there's a difference there. Now, maybe there's no honor when you run trick plays and you're just trying to actively run the score. But when you're just out there and you're running your normal offense like you would be, I don't think there's anything dishonorable about that. And if the other team has an issue with that, then I know this sounds harsh, but like their job is to stop that. They've got to go out there and try to stop that. I think it's just it, there's too many benefits for our team to continue to play our game offensively and defensively as well. Those potential benefits just significantly outweigh any potential drawbacks and any potential hurt feelings of other SEC coaches, in my opinion. I know it's easy for me to say because I'm not the head coach. I don't have to. Have, I don't have to talk to these guys. I don't have, to have relationships with the other head coaches in the league. I get that, but if you're looking from my standpoint, from the standpoint of a fan, a guy who has a podcast. I would really like to see us, again, not actively try to run the score up, but just continue to work our offense, get those guys some work, and just and get some of those cosmetic points because they do matter. I mean, I'm not saying put hang 70 on everybody, but you know what? We absolutely could have beaten Auburn about 40 to 6. We easily could have done that, but we didn't. We called the dogs off in the second half. There's no doubt about that. And yeah, we still won handedly. We still won very comfortably. But in the eyes of the committee members, absolutely there is a difference between 40 to 6 and 27 to 6. There just is. You can't tell me they're not influenced by that. And it's not just that. They go back and they look at game control metrics. They look at yards differential, all those kind of things. And those things matter. They come into play when you just put a hard foot on the brake in the second half when you've got a nice lead. And on some level, I get it. You get the lead. You just want to get out there, get out of the game and just win and get out and, and go get prepared for the next game. I understand that on some level, but there's more to it than that. All right, next up, we have a couple of questions that I know are going to get you excited, Tyler. Ooh, let's Bolt, go. Bolt Dog and Jeremy both have some X's and O's based questions. So since I know you can't remember two questions at one time. Yeah, give me one at a time. One at a time, Bolt please. Bolt Dog asks, can you explain why our passing game and routes seem so much different and better than the last couple of years? And what do you attribute And what do you attribute Kyrus Jackson's success to this year? Well, actually, you can handle this because they're basically the same question. Jeremy asks if you will break down some of the actual schemes, plays, X's and O's that you've seen from Todd Munkin in this offense that are different from years and coordinators past. Wait, wait. What just happened? You can do it. I'm just kidding. I got it. I got this. I got this. I got this. I I appreciate your faith in me. I got this. All right. They're basically the same question, so I got this. All right. So basically, what is going on with our passing game, with our offense? What's different? Absolutely great question. 
And yes, I love the X's and O's. You know me too well, Charlie. But here's what, we'll start with this. Okay, so the route tree is the route tree. There are only so many routes that players can run and coordinators can have their teams execute, right? The route tree is the route tree. What Todd Munkin is doing that I'm so impressed with and has me really excited, it's what he's doing to create open wide receivers. That's what has me excited. He's doing a lot of different stuff that I haven't seen a Georgia coordinator do in maybe ever, honestly, to be quite honest with you. Formationally, we are doing some really different stuff, some stuff that's very intriguing. I think we're only beginning to just touch the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we can do formationally. Because I've seen, for example, trips into the boundary. Like I, I can't remember Jim Chaney or Coley running trips into the boundary. Um, ISO in the tight end trips to one side, ISO in the tight end out wide on the other side. We didn't see things like that very often at all under previous coordinators. And just watch how Todd Munkin uses motion. It's extraordinarily deliberate. Some teams use motion just as kind of like window dressing. Gus Malzahn for years as an example. It's kind of just use it as as eye candy, window dressing, without necessarily having a true deliberate purpose behind it, but not Todd Munkin. He uses it very deliberately to get defenders out of position, to put them in conflict, which is what offensive football is all about, guys. It's putting defenders in conflict and forcing them to make a choice, and whatever they choose, you do the opposite. They just simply can't be right if you scheme it and execute it properly. And the Pickens touchdown catch, I kind of laid that out on the recap show. That's a perfect example of that. We had a safety that was shading towards the boundary on that hash there over Pickens. They were trying to have safety help over the top on George at least most of the first half before Kiaris just started to destroy them. And on that play, what we did is we used James Cook. We were trying to scheme a way to kind of relieve some of that attention on Pickens and get that safety out from over the top of him. So we send, I believe it was James Cook, if I remember correctly, send him in motion, kind of that flat motion in front of the quarterback, cross his face. It caused the safety to move ever so slightly off that hash. And then we snapped the ball and that gave us just enough room for Bennett to put the ball in the air, lay it out there on the fade, for Pickens to go make the nice catch, and you got you got six. You got a touchdown there. And that was all made by the fact, now obviously the, the, the players had to execute it, yes, but the fact that we sent Cook in motion and just pulled that safety ever so slightly off the hash, we were able to give Pickens the room he needed and to have him open in that situation. It's just those small little things that are very easy to miss upon your first watch. And another thing that I'm really impressed with, and like we had some of these with Chaney and Coley as well, but we're seeing a lot more sight adjustments for the receivers. And what I mean by a sight adjustment is the receivers are given a route to run to start off with, but that route can be changed based on the coverage that they see the defense in. What they see, what's in their sight, causes them to adjust their route. That's why we call it a sight adjustment. And going back to that interception by Dwan Mathis, or when he got picked off in the in the red zone against Arkansas, and we were all beating up on Dwan Mathis. Going back and watching that play over and over and over again, I really believe on that play that Jermaine Burton was supposed to stop there in zone coverage, but he kept kind of streaking across the field as it, as though it was man coverage. And that's what he's supposed to do if it's man coverage. But when he sees that it's zone, the side adjustment is to sit down right there, a quick little hitch, and he did not do that. Now I will say that Dwan Mathis should have seen that he was not sitting there in that hitch and not thrown that ball, and he came back to him late. Mathis should have gone to Fitzpatrick on that play for the touchdown, but he didn't. But the fact is that Jermaine Burton was not where he needed to be. And we're seeing that with some of our receivers. We saw it with Rosemey. There's a play in the, I think it was the first quarter with Rosemey where he continues running vertically up the field like a go route. But when they were in zone, they were playing off of him like that, playing that soft off coverage that he should have just stopped right there, put the brakes on about five yards, turn, show his numbers, 
and you've got a quick little hitch there, and that's an easy completion, probably a first down. Stetson throws it there like it's going to be a hitch, but Rosemey wasn't there, and it's because he's young. He doesn't understand the side adjustments yet. When Kirby talks about our young receivers having to grow, that's what he's talking about. We saw another example of that in the end zone with Jermaine Burton. There's a miscommunication there. He didn't make the right side adjustment. And that's a big part of what Todd Munkin is trying to do. He, again, he's trying to put the defense in conflict and create a situation where no matter what the defense is doing, we have answers. And that takes some sophistication among your receivers. That's one of the reasons a guy like Kyrus Jackson is having a lot of success. He's been, I know he's new to this system, but he's been at the college level. He understands what defenses are trying to do. He understands where the soft spots are going to be in zones and what to do when teams are playing the man coverage, all those kinds of things. He understands how to use leverage. He understands where to sit. He understands side adjustments. And I will say it seems like that we are using more sophisticated side adjustments than we have in the past under Coley and Chaney. And those are things that we're going to continue to get better at. And once this offense starts clicking with things like that start to click, this offense is going to be dangerous, especially when those young guys, when they start to figure it out, it hasn't happened yet. But all these mistakes they're making, I'm glad they're making them now when we're still winning because we can get away with it because we're going to need them to be able to make those plays when we play the Alabamas, the Floors of the world, and maybe even Tennessee this week. I, I, you know, we'll get to Tennessee later on this week, but it's going to be a, a step up in competition from what we saw from Auburn. So there's a couple things we're doing. We're also tagging plays a lot. What I mean by that is we're like if we call a run play, it's all it seems to be almost always tagged with some sort of RPO, some sort of other play to go along with it. And you can tell like, they're, they're certainly tagged with screens, seam routes, things like that, different versions of RPOs than what we've seen before. We've run RPOs plenty with Cheney and Coley. I don't think we ran enough of them last year, to be honest with you. But we're doing some different things in the RPO game. Again, a little bit more sophisticated in what we're doing from an RPO standpoint than what we've done in the past. And I also think that Todd Buckingham does an outstanding job of setting plays up and kind of packaging them. For example, like we're, we might run a split zone on one play. A split zone is where the tight end lines up on one side line of scrimmage, like an H-back, and he comes across the line of scrimmage to block the defense and kind of kick him out. So we, run, you might, we might run a split zone on one play where that tight end's coming across the line of scrimmage to block that backside defensive end. And we kind of run that to see how does the defense react to that tight end's motion. And then we'll come back to it later and either maybe leak the tight end out on a route or have him continue on as a blocker on a screen, things like that. I've seen us set up a lot more screens than, we, than we're used to seeing in the past. Now, they haven't all worked out. There's one to James Cook in the Arkansas game that was there for massive yards, but it just happened to hit the back of an offensive lineman. So just an execution thing. But again, that's one of those things. We're also tagging a lot of the run plays with screens. So I'm telling you guys, it's only a matter of time before we really start to incorporate a lot of screens, tunnel screens, running back screens, a variety of things, tight end screens, middle screens, all those things. They're all fair game. I think we're going to start to see a lot more, especially when we start playing some teams that want to bring some pressure like Tennessee is going to want to try to do. I expect to see a lot more of that kind of stuff. Uh, in the run game, we're seeing a lot of things that are just, God, it's just such a sight for sore eyes. Pulling guards, pulling tackles, even pulling centers. Yes, Trey Hill was pulling on Saturday against Auburn. We're running more power-based gap scheme type stuff. We're running some of that split zone action, which I really like. Alabama's made that uh, a major part of their offense for years. I'm going back to the Lane Kiffin years. And we're kind of incorporating more of that than we have in the past. I'm not saying we've never done that, but it's becoming more of a central part of our offense in the run game. So I think we're only scratching the surface of what this offense can be. And I don't think that we've seen a ton of what we have in this playbook. So I'm very excited to see what we continue to add to the mix here as our guys continue to grow and get more comfortable in this offense. All right, the next package of questions are about the improved play on the offensive line from week one to week two. So Trevor asked, what was the biggest difference between the offensive line play in week one and two? And Trenton asked, from last week to yesterday, how did the offensive, li- offensive line improve so dramatically? Yeah, it's a, good, it's a very good question because it was almost night and day from week one to week two. 
I think it's a combination of things. First off, I just have to say this competition wasn't very great. We have to be real here. We did not beat up on the best defensive line in the SEC. Far from it. Auburn's defensive line just isn't very good right now. I think Tennessee's defense line, I don't think they're elite, but they're going to be a step up from what Auburn's defensive line was. And certainly Alabama in two weeks, that's going to be a major step up. Kentucky's going to be a big step up. So we have some better defensive lines coming up here the next couple of weeks. But that Auburn defensive line is not very good. We have to be honest about that. I don't want to pretend that our offensive line is something that they're not. But they did play much better. And look, I think one thing that we did as well to add to this, we did enough in the passing game to pose a threat. And so they weren't able to consistently outnumber us in the box. They tried to at times. They came out trying to do that. But we were still largely able to find room, even though they were trying to outnumber us, just because we were physically dominant in that game up front. They just couldn't handle our physicality up front. And when we found success on the ground early in that game, when that happens, it allows you to work off play action. It slows down the pass rush, making pass protection easier. So our guys did a better job in pass protection in their passing grades, largely because Auburn just, they were a step slow because we were establishing the run so effectively that they couldn't just pin their ears back and come after us. So I think all those things kind of work together. But honestly, guys, I know this sounds really ridiculous and just very simplistic, but it's just true. Our guys just played better. They played better from a physicality standpoint. They played better from a technique standpoint. They were better than what they showed us week one. I'm still not convinced they're an elite offensive line. I still need to see that more consistently, but I was encouraged by what I saw. And one guy that just blew me away was Big Ben. It might've been Big Ben's best game as a Georgia Bulldog. I mean, he was a monster in this game against Auburn. He was clearing room, destroying people, playing with that nasty demeanor that you want to see from that guard position. But he also did a great job in pass protection, which is something I've been critical of him in the past. He's a great road grader. I mean, he is a beast up there. We know that. But pass protection, bend, all those kind of things, quickness, with his footwork, it's not necessarily been his game. But overall, he had the second highest grade offensively among guys who played 10 or more snaps with an 80.4 overall grade on Pro Football Focus. But his passing grade, 84.2. I need to go back and look at his numbers from like 2017. That might be his best passing grade, pass blocking grade of his career. I mean, he was just lights out in that game. And if he can continue to build off that and play like that the rest of the way, that's going to be a major boom for our offense. We need him to play like that, especially when you got a new guy working in at right tackle. Right now, it's Warren McClendon. It might be Owen Condon. We'll see how that plays out the rest of the, of the year. But I think overall, Big Ben played better, and our guys just played closer to what they're capable of than what they did in week one. I know that sounds simple, but it's just it's the case. It was Week one was kind of just weird thing where they all kind of just at the same time combined to play about as poorly as they possibly could. The penalties, the holdings, all of that kind of thing. And maybe all, maybe Arkansas's defensive line and defensive front might actually be better than Auburn's right now. I think that's that's certainly possible. We need to see more of Arkansas and more of Auburn. I think right now it's certainly possible. All right, Brian has a question about two running backs that we've seen flashes from so far. He asks, "Do you think we can get Kenny Mack and Kendall Milton involved more on offense with sweep screens, etc.?" He likes Zeus as the primary back, and it's a luxury to have a wealth of talent. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I love what I've seen from, from Kenny McIntosh and Kill Milton as well. That play where he just basically shrugged off a 300-plus pound starting defensive lineman, Tyrone Truesdale, for Auburn. Very Nick Chubb-esque. Just the way, and not just breaking the tackle, but just the way he looked on that play. He looked like Nick Chubb on that play. Just the way he was moving, the way he was running. And, that, and I know that's a very small sample size there, but I thought he played very well in limited playing time. And I think... The future is extraordinarily bright for him. I would love to see that guy get some more touches. He was kind of nursing a little hamstring issue during preseason camp. It looks like, looks like he's back now. And McIntosh, I mean, in the return game, he's been outstanding. 
But as a running back, I mean, this guy, he's got more speed than I thought he showed last year. He's got great lateral agility. We saw that last year. He seems like he's got some ability to catch the ball out of the backfield. I really like both those guys. But the problem is, like, there's only so many carries to go around. There's so many touches to go around. When you've got Zeus back there, you want to feed him. You've got Cook, who was actually running the ball really well until he went down with the injury. And I think there's a lot that he can bring to the table from a passing game standpoint. So it's just, it's a it's a great problem to have. It is a, a luxury to have that wealth of talent. And look, the running back position is a tough spot. You're going to take a lot of hits. So I don't want anyone to get hurt, but it's nice to have those guys behind Zeus and behind James Cook. I mean, Cook went down with an injury in that first half against Auburn, and sounds like he'll hopefully be back this week. But it's really nice to have guys like McIntosh and Milton there behind these guys in case someone goes down. I wish we could get more guy, more touches for these guys. I just don't know. Like, do you really want to take away touches from Zeus? I, I don't know. Zeus is running like a, a man possessed on, on Saturday against Auburn. I think that, that again, was just the, the tip of the iceberg for what Zeus is going to end up doing the rest of this year. So tough question. I would like to think we can find a way, but it's just easier said than done. All right. Our next question is another one that was sent in from multiple listeners. Our good friend Josh was all over this, as was Georgia CFB. Um, but Drill Dog and many others asked, why give Landers valuable game reps when we have so many talented receivers? Oh, yeah. I know, guys. I know. I know. We talked about this on the recap show and Matt Landers and, and what he was thinking there. I, I've tried for so long to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But what I said in the recap show, it's kind of like he's the boy who cried wolf. Like There's only so many times you can say, oh, I didn't see the ball. Oh, I lost the ball in the lights. Like, he did, he did this against Florida. He did this against LSU. He did it against Auburn on Saturday. We've seen this from this guy over and over again. And the question is, I know a lot of people are frustrated. Like, why do we keep sending this guy out there if he keeps doing these things, right? Well, I think the answer is because he has every tool imaginable at that position, but he just can't get it right when the lights come on. I understand why it's so appealing to the coaches and so attractive to try to get him on the field and just hope that eventually it clicks. And I think we've seen signs, to be fair to Landers, I think we've seen signs of it starting to click more and more for him. We saw a, a good performance from him in the Sugar Bowl. We saw a nice, solid performance, reliable performance in week one against Arkansas. Made a couple catches, nothing crazy, nothing spectacular, but he made the routine plays, which he hasn't really necessarily done his entire career. I think Landers, honestly, going back to last year, I think a big part of it was he just didn't have a ton of confidence. And things like that, like inexplicable things happen. You do inexplicable things like not run a ball down and not run through the play when you don't have confidence. I, I really believe that. I think it's a confidence thing for him. So I, every time this guy catches a ball, I feel really good because I think he can still be really good because look what the guy has from a physical standpoint. We just need him to get more confident and believe in himself and go out there and we need good things to happen for him. Now he's got to do his part to make good things happen. There's no doubt. But I understand why the coaches keep trying him out there. I'll also say this. He's also really experienced. Now, his production hasn't been fantastic, and he's made a bunch of boneheaded plays. We know that. A lot of drops. We know all that stuff. But he's really experienced. And when you have a bunch of young guys at the receiver position that are struggling to pick up on the, some of the side adjustments and things like that that we detailed earlier, it's important to have a guy with experience out there as much as you can when you have the younger guys who are still growing, still learning, still trying to improve. And I, I'm not giving up on the guy. I, I know I, I kind of alluded that I might be on the recap show, but I'm trying again to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. From everything I, I, I've ever heard about this guy, he said he works really hard. Like he wants to do well. I heard he had a really good camp and I, I want to believe in him. And I think he can do it. He just, he's got to show me, man. Like we started to see signs. We started to see signs of life. He's just got to get back to doing it more consistently, build some confidence. He just needs to make one of those big plays on the field. If he can just make one big play down the field, then I think, the light might go off for him. I think it might change. I really think more than anything, it's about confidence. And we just got to find a way to get him some confidence. All right. 
Nolan Smith, the former number one overall recruit, seems to have taken the next step. And that's where Wendell is taking this next question. He says, Nolan Smith is an absolute freak on the field. The coaches put him out wide in space. For the next play, he's setting the edge and making a play for his linebackers. And then on the next play, he's covering a slot receiver on third down. But he doesn't get any sacks. How yeah, that, good can this guy be? Yeah, that's that's the the line, right? Well, he, he doesn't wear the sacks, right? You gotta play your play your position, do your job. Right. He he does what he's asked to do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and and what Wendell said here is very tongue in cheek that he doesn't get any sacks. I want to make sure that people don't think that Wendell was trying to criticize Nolan there. He obviously is all over him here and, and certainly has his back. And, and I'm with you, Wendell. Nolan Smith, I think he's about to break out. I really think he's about to break out. Obviously, Jermaine Johnson didn't play on Saturday. He was dressed out on the sideline. I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what was going on there, but he was dressed out. Usually, if you're injured, you're not dressed out. You're there on the team, but you're in street clothes, maybe with the jersey on. But Kirby said in his Monday press conference that Jermaine was kind of just nursing a little bit of an injury. He was a little bit dinged up, but we were going to play him if we need to play him, but obviously, we didn't need to play him, so why play him, right? But Nolan Smith got a lot more reps, and man, like just... The way this guy plays, you're right, Charlie. He does his job. He does what he's asked to do. And it's so, t- think about this, guys. A former number one overall recruit. Those kind of guys, they want theirs, right? They want their sack numbers. They want to be the star. They want to be the guy that's going to be a first round NFL draft pick. Very rarely do you see guys like that that are willing to do the dirty work, the, the plays where you're, you're taking on a pulling guard, right? Where you, where you take them on with your inside shoulder, you keep that edge, you set the edge. You don't see guys willing to do that consistently. Nolan appears to embrace that. He need to, and not just embrace it, but he's executing it extraordinarily well. I thought he played outstanding against Auburn in week two. And I think it's just a matter of time where this guy just breaks out and becomes an absolute star. It's kind of like running back, though. The problem is there's just only so many snaps to go around. You got Aziz, you got Nolan, you got Jermaine Johnson, you got Adam Anderson on third downs. Like, how do you get all these guys the reps they deserve? Like, any other team, Nolan's probably playing every other snap. I mean, most teams in America, he's playing every single snap for just about every team in America. But for us, we're just so fortunate right now at that position that it's hard for him to get the snaps that he wants. And Kirby said last week that Nolan's actually asking him, hey, can I go get some reps on the scout team? I just want more reps. I want to go work. How many former number one overall recruits with all the entitlement that comes along with being the number one overall recruit, how many guys are asking to voluntarily go to the scout team to get more reps? You don't hear that. It's unheard of. So I'm a huge Nolan Smith fan and I just, I'm so happy with any kind of success he has with everything I've heard about him is that he's just an outstanding young man. I'm really excited for him, excited for our team and what he's going to be able to do for us for sure. All right, and our last few questions are looking ahead to games later on this season. Trey asks, how much better are the Bama receivers compared to Auburn's receivers? That's a good question. So Seth Williams, I would say for Auburn, he's right up there among the top receivers in the league. Anthony Schwartz, like he's certainly a speed guy, a 10-flat, 100-meter guy, outstanding track speed. We know that. I still don't think he's developed as a true wide receiver yet. I mean, through his career at this point, he's mainly been used as a screen guy, intermediate guy. And for all his speed, he doesn't beat you deep vertically all that often. Now, he can stretch you deep. You can do some things underneath with him, but he doesn't hit those big home run plays as often as you would think a guy with his speed would. But Seth Williams is a legit guy. He's physical, got good speed, good hands, runs good routes, all those things. He's a really good receiver. But Bama's got two legit dudes out there with Waddle and Smith. And then John Mitchie is really coming along. He had over 180 yards receiving. I think it was on five catch against Texas A&M. He was a freshman last year. He's another guy they've got. I mean, they just seem to grow those receivers on trees over there in Tuscaloosa. But Alabama's just on a different level. They've just, they've just got more other. I think Seth Williams is the only truly elite receiver that Auburn has. 
Bama's got at least two elite receivers, and maybe Mitchie's growing into that right now. So there's just more of them. They're certainly on a different level. All right. Jeff asks, crazy as it sounds, do you think this year we try to beat Saban at his own game and throw a quarterback switcheroo? Well, a la Tua Tungavailoa in the national title game? Yeah. Oh, no. I don't... I, I look. I, you can never say never. I don't like to speak speaking absolutes because crazy things happen, right? But I certainly would say I'm doubtful that that's going to happen. I think Kirby is just going to play the guy he thinks gives us the best chance to win. Now maybe if we get in that Alabama game and things aren't going well, and he thinks we need to spark the offense, kind of like what he did in, in Week One with with the benching of Dwan Mathis. Maybe maybe we go with someone different. Maybe we throw Dwan Mathis back in there. Maybe we throw JT Daniels in there. That's certainly possible. But I don't think he's going to go in there with the mindset, okay, you know what? I'm really going to trick them. I'm going to make them think all week that the plan is going to be to start Stetson Bennett. I'm going to go out there the first couple of series, play Stetson, and then I'm going to pull that switch through. I don't think Kirby is is that kind of coach. I'm not saying that there would be anything wrong with that. I just don't think that's how Kirby operates. I think he's going to prepare a guy to play. If that guy does not perform well in the game, then he's going to make a move like he did in week one. He prepared Dwan Mathis to play. Mathis was not performing well. We were not doing anything offensively, and he had to make a move to kind of spark the offense, and Stetson certainly did that. So if that happens against Alabama, then I could see him making a switch, but I don't know if that's going to be something deliberately he plans on doing going into the game as part of the game plan. And with our last question today, Can Quinn asks, after watching two, I got I got to apologize here, Charlie. I'm sorry. Can Quinn? Do you know what that name is referring to? Can Dan Quinn? Do you know who Dan Quinn is? No. So how did you know Can Dan Quinn? Have you just heard that name somewhere? Yes. But you have no idea who he is. No. Because the NFL is not your thing. Correct. The NFL is not my thing either. But he is the Falcons head coach, and he. Oh uh, well, I mean, they yeah, just can't yeah, the, get yeah, it together. So you know. Now, so that, that's where Can Quinn okay. comes from. Sorry, guys, I just had to help Charlie out there. I, I, I can see her face. She's kind of confused with the name, like, Can Quinn, what is that? So I had to help her out a little bit. The listeners would like to know, after watching two full Tennessee games, how does their offensive line look and how does our defensive line match up? Yeah, this is a great question. It's a really important question going into this game because Tennessee is going to try to be physical. They're going to try to out-physical us. They've kind of built their team Based on only the model that Kirby Smart first brought to Athens, they're trying to model it after that, especially with Jim Chaney at the helm as their offensive coordinator. But this Tennessee offensive line, we'll talk a lot more about it in the preview show later on this week, but just to give you a little bit of taste of that, this Tennessee offensive line is not near as good as the national media and their fan base will tell you that it is. It's just not. Those people who are constantly playing up this Tennessee offensive line. They are simply caught up on the number of four and five-star recruits that they have on their offensive line right now. And they have a bunch of them, guys. That Wayne Morris, Don O'Reilly, Cade Mays, Trey Smith, those are five-star guys absolutely coming out of high school. But that's the talking point you always hear. Oh, they got so many four and five-star guys. Okay, cool, awesome. But are you paying any attention whatsoever to the production? It's like they don't actually watch them play or they have no idea what they're looking for when they do watch them play. Cade Mays, obviously he's the big talking point here in this game because he's transferring over to Tennessee, coming back to Athens. Obviously, we know that's a big talking point. But Cade Mays makes them better. I'm not going to sit here and say that having Cade Mays on their offensive line doesn't make any difference at all. It does. He makes them better at right tackle because what that means is that Darnell Wright doesn't have to play as many snaps at right tackle. But let's stop making Cade Mays out to be some sort of All-American. He's not. Yeah, he's a former five-star recruit, and he did some good things for us. He had some good games, had some good moments, 
but he also missed a lot of blocks and spent a lot of time on the ground as well. Just go watch the last four games last year. If you can find them on tape somewhere, if you got them recorded on your DVR, go back and watch Cade Mays and just watch Cade Mays in those games and tell me if you think that's a former five-star performance because it just simply was not. Now, as a freshman, I thought he played pretty well. Early last year, yeah, he played pretty well. He certainly faded down the stretch for whatever reason. Now, I know last week was his first game action this year, so maybe there's a little bit of rust there. Certainly could be possible. But he was fine-ish, I guess, on Saturday. He grayed out at a 62 overall on Saturday against Missouri, according to Pro Football Focus, but only 35.7 as a pass blocker, which doesn't surprise me at all. Again, if you go back and watch how he performed the last half of last year, and this might put it into perspective for you guys. I know obviously there's been a lot of consternation about our offensive line early in this season, but here's a stat for you. Every single offensive lineman on our team that played against Auburn with this one exception of Owen Condon graded out above Cade Mays last week. Cade Mays against Missouri, 62 overall grade. Every single offensive lineman on our team except for Owen Condon that got in and played in that game, even later in the second half when it was a blowout, graded out above Cade Mays. Just putting that out there. They had one single offensive lineman grade out at a 70 or above last week. We had four. I know we were playing a different team, a different defense. I get that, but just giving you some perspective, when you look at how much criticism our offensive line has taken versus how much praise their offensive line has gotten, and actually look at the production, look at what they're doing on the field, you might have a very different view of this Tennessee offensive line. And look, I'm not saying they're terrible. They're pretty good. They're better than they have been. It's not a complete trash offensive line like it has been in years past. Trey Smith is, a, is probably a first-round NFL draft pick. He's really good at left guard. Brandon Kendi, the former transfer from Alabama, good player at center. Their issues primarily are at tackle right now. The interior of that offensive line is pretty good. But at tackle, there are some issues. Cade Mays does make them better because Darnell Wright is that bad at tackle. He graded out at 40 overall last year as a true freshman. He's a former five-star, but that dude is not a five-star prospect. He's just not playing like that in any way, shape, or form right now. But Wayne Morris over there on the left side at tackle, he's not there yet either. He still has not graded out over 60 this season. I know it's only in two games, but he still hasn't graded out over 60 at this point. He hasn't even gotten to 60 yet. His highest grade ever going back to his true freshman year last year is a 67. He graded out overall at a 44 last year, guys. The dude is like, he's just not there yet. He, he's just simply nice, not there from a physical standpoint. He's going to get overpowered by our defensive line because that's his issue. He's, he's got good athleticism, but he plays with poor technique. He has improved from what I've seen so far, breaking down Tennessee, getting ready for this, this preview episode later on this week. He has improved in his footwork. He's improved in his hand placement, those kind of things. But he still gets overextended. He doesn't play with proper leverage consistently. And he just is overpowered at times in the run game. He's just not a big physical guy, which doesn't really gel with what they want to be on their offensive line. But he's their best option right now at left tackle, and it isn't a particularly great option. So if you look at that offensive line and our defensive line, I know all the national pundits out there would tell me that I'm crazy, but give me our defensive line. I like what our defensive line is doing right now. Their offensive line is getting better. It's improving, but our defensive line is playing at a different level right now. Maybe I'll, I'll sing a different tune after Saturday. Maybe it's possible, right? I don't like to speak in absolutes, but I really do like this matchup right now. I think this is a matchup that we can win. Maybe not dominate as much as we did against Auburn because Tennessee's offensive line is certainly going to be a step up from what Auburn has right now. Auburn's offensive line is just a disaster. It has been for years and it's just not really getting much better. It's an entirely new offensive line. Essentially, Tennessee at least has some continuity there. 
They have some continuity with the players, with the staff as well. So there is that. They're going to be better than Auburn was up front. So it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge. But I still like the way our defensive line is playing right now. We have so much depth there. We have guys that can do different things in different downs and distances. I mean, right now, Jordan Davis, like Brandon Kennedy is a good player, but is he going to consistently move Jordan Davis on his own? I have real questions about that. And if he can't move him on his own, they're going to have to double team Davis and game plan around him. That really affects what they're able to do. You're going to have more free running linebackers. So I think that could certainly impact him. And it's not just David. Devontae White's playing at a really high level. Jalen Carter's playing at a high level. Even Julian Rochester's playing at a high level right now. Warren Brinson, another true freshman that people don't really talk about as much as Carter gets all the attention. He's in the rotation right now, and he's playing pretty well. Malik Herring is a stud at the five-tech. Jamel Walthour's actually played pretty well when he's gotten in there. We just have a lot of guys that we're rolling in and out, and they're all playing really well. We're not even talking about the linebacking core right now. It's playing really well, the outside linebackers and the inside linebackers. So, yeah, Tennessee's offensive line, it's slightly improved, and they have some good players, but they still have issues at tackle specifically. And the way our defensive line is playing right now, I just I think this is a matchup that can end up ultimately favoring the good guys. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UJ podcast. Really appreciate you guys sending in all those questions. And I know we're probably going to check Twitter as soon as this episode is over. And there's going to be a bunch of other questions that we didn't get a chance to get to before we record this show. So I do apologize if we missed your question. We'll try to find a way to work that in over the next couple episodes or at least answer your question on social media. So I want to put that out there. But thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for the support. Thanks for all the questions. We'll be back later this week with the Tennessee breakdown, the preview of that game. And then, of course, we'll wrap the week up with our week three picks of the week, which is always a very, very fun episode for us to record. We hope you guys enjoy listening to those episodes as much as we enjoy actually recording them. It's always a lot of fun. But thanks for listening, guys. For Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.